This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Les Miserables. Do you hate the letter S? Try Les Miserables today. Welcome to episode 66 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. It is Friday, December 3rd. You can subscribe to The Sweaty Penguin on Apple, Spotify, Google, Podcast Addict, wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star rating and a review, and you will get a shout-out at the end of the show. The other way to get a shout-out? Join our Patreon. For as little as five bucks a month, you'll also get access to some Sweaty Penguin swag exclusive bonus content, and more. You can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Today, we are talking about the flu. The best way I can ensure that this episode will go viral. Seriously, come back, guys. I promise. This episode is going to be sick. And writing it wasn't sneezy. Okay, yeah, fine. That one didn't work. If you'll stick around, though. The flu, or influenza, is a contagious respiratory illness caused by influenza viruses that infect the nose, throat, and sometimes the lungs. You're very likely quite familiar with the flu, seeing as the Center for Disease Control estimated roughly 8% of the country catches the flu every year. I've had it once, got it in the middle of winter term finals during high school actually, which sadly did not get me out of any exams, just prevented me from having time to study for them, so worst of both worlds. And I'm sure many of you have had flu stories as well. It sucks. What you might not have realized, however, is that influenza could get worse due to climate change. Our symptoms could become more severe, and the patterns of influenza itself could change in some less-than-ideal ways, and not just having to book CVS appointments online now. Today, we'll cover how climate change affects influenza, why that matters, and where we go from here. But first, we need to cover a little background on influenza, and to do that, we're going to have a quick health class. Sadly, we don't have Coach Steve from Big Mouth here, and I can't do an impression of him or talk while eating a banana, but we'll try our best to have a fun health class without him. Influenza typically originates in birds, or sometimes other animals, such as pigs. That's where terms like bird flu and swine flu come from. We use the word influenza quite broadly, but there is a long list of strains of influenza that crop up year to year. The virus mutates, like if the Hulk started off as the Hulk, but mutated into a slightly different Hulk. That's why we get a flu shot every year, as opposed to just once as a baby, like we do for polio or chickenpox. Our immune system needs to learn each year what new strain it's going up against. Think about it. Just because you're vaccinated against sour diesel doesn't mean you're vaccinated against purple kush. Most experts think the flu virus spreads mainly by droplets made when people with the flu cough, sneeze, or try to perform Shakespeare and end up spitting on the whole audience. 
These droplets can land in the mouths or noses of people nearby, be inhaled into their lungs, or even end up on a surface that someone else touches. Most experts think the flu virus spreads mainly by droplets made when people with the flu sneeze, cough, or try to perform Shakespeare and end up spitting on the whole audience. These droplets can land in the mouths or noses of people nearby, be inhaled into their lungs, or even end up on a surface that someone else touches. We don't actually know this for sure, though, since the flu transmission happens at such a microscopic level. We're sure about this in the same way that we're sure we turned off the oven. I mean, we know we did. We checked eight times before bed, but are we really sure? If you or someone you know has had the flu before, you likely know the common symptoms. Fever, chills, cough, sore throat, runny or stuffy nose, aches, fatigue, sometimes vomiting or diarrhea, though that's more common for children than adults. And while it typically doesn't, the flu can get a lot worse than that. The CDC estimates that annually, the flu results in 9 to 41 million illnesses, depending on the severity of the season, which results in 140,000 to 710,000 hospitalizations and 12,000 to 52,000 deaths. That's right, tens of thousands of people die every year from the flu. If those numbers sound a little tame to you compared to the catastrophe we've seen over the last two years due to coronavirus, I promise you, they're a really big deal. Influenza and pneumonia together are ranked ninth on the CDC's ranking for leading cause of death in the United States. So while the flu isn't nearly as lethal as the coronavirus, the fact that so many people get the flu leads it to be a major health issue each and every year. And it's not just a health issue, it's also an economic issue. If you have the flu, you'll do one of two things. Either you'll stay home from work and rest up, which if possible is certainly what experts would recommend, or you'll go to work but infect others on the job. It's like the trolley problem, but instead of a trolley, it's an eight-foot used tissue on wheels. For business owners, I'd hope you'd prefer your employees rest up and not infect each other, but both of those options come at a large cost. Listen to Kitty Wood, a boutique manager in Texas, share in a news interview what happened when half of her staff caught the flu in 2018. It's a big struggle in a boutique like this because we have such a small staff and every person who comes in is really important to the staff. Fewer employees translates into fewer dollars, and this store is already seeing the effects. Well, our numbers are down because of the flu, for sure. We think everybody's are. This might sound like nothing more than some bad luck for one business, but what Kitty experienced with her store, where many staff members were out at once due to the flu and numbers were down as a result, happens all the time. If we total up situations like Kitty's involving lost earnings, direct medical costs, loss of life, and every other economic cost of influenza, the total economic burden of annual influenza epidemics amounts to $87.1 billion. That's almost an entire Larry Page every year. So by that logic, you probably wouldn't notice it went missing until a Business Insider article magically appears on your Facebook feed, like... Hey, have any of you seen Larry Page? No? Okay.
So while cases like the one Kitty faced at her boutique might come off like anomalies when you hear them on the news, they're actually very common, and they have a profound effect on our economy. So the flu is pretty bad on its own, to say the least, which is why it's all the more concerning that climate change threatens to make it worse. For one, climate change can affect the patterns of the flu. With birds being a frequent origin of new flu strains, you can imagine that as climate change leads birds to move to new habitats, migrate differently, choose different stopover sites, and even change their breeding habits, the distribution of the flu and the mutation process to create a new strain will be different. Sort of like Lord's new stuff. Maybe not worse, but different, and certainly harder to predict. On top of that, With fall weather becoming wackier as climate change worsens, flu seasons can kick off earlier than usual. That actually happened in the 2017 to 2018 flu season. The flu kicked off in the fall during some unseemly weather and was able to start spreading a lot earlier than normal. It certainly doesn't help our immune systems to withstand these weather swings either. As Katy Perry once said, being hot and cold doesn't always lead to kiss and make up. Now, if you're thinking critically about everything I'm saying, you might be a little skeptical right now. Sure, the flu will change, but why would it get worse? The flu happens in the winter, so wouldn't a warmer climate fend it off more than anything else? Well, not necessarily, but we don't quite know. First and foremost, we need an answer to the question of why the flu happens in the winter. And according to Vanderbilt's Dr. William Schaffner, that's not as simple as it sounds. Here he is describing what happens in the winter when you exhale a droplet that contains flu viruses. In the winter time, when it's cold, but more importantly, dry, less humid, that particle comes out and that little bit of moisture evaporates. And so what's left is the flu virus and it's lighter and it remains, it remains suspended in the air for a longer period of time. So there are more opportunities for people who are around me to inhale the virus and therefore get sick. That probably also is at least a partial contributor as to why influenza and other respiratory viruses are more common in the wintertime, at least in the temperate climates, than they are in the summer. I'll bet there's some reasons we still don't understand about that also. So that's one theory from Dr. Schaffner of why flu season is in the winter. If it's humid, the moisture won't evaporate off our droplets, so they'll fall to the ground. But if it's dry, the moisture will evaporate off and the flu virus will remain suspended in the air. Makes sense, right? He also offers a less scientific theory that just people spend more time indoors during the winter, so there's a greater chance of transmission. And there's other theories too. Scientific studies have actually backed them up. But if any of these theories are true, how do you explain that in tropical countries, where it's usually warm, humid, and rainy, not only does the flu exist, but it exists year round? These theories sound very clear, and you'd think, a hot, wet climate wouldn't have to deal with the flu because of them. But that's not how it plays out. 
That's why Dr. Schaffner keeps hedging his statements. He calls his theory a partial contributor. He says there's probably reasons we don't understand. That's not to say he's wrong. He knows exactly what he's saying. But it goes to show that the relationship between flu and climate is not as straightforward as cold and dry equals worse flu. We don't fully know the answer. Much like your aunt who's obsessed with taking a cruise to Aruba, the flu manages to hang around in tropical climates, and it does so year-round. What does that mean for anyone in a seasonal climate? Well, we aren't 100% sure, but if we assume a seasonal climate becomes more of a tropical climate, the flu will behave as such. It will become year-round. That means the flu would have more time to spread, more time to mutate, and if it were really a problem, we might even need to be developing more than one flu shot per year to keep up. Since the virus typically stops evolving in the spring in the US, we have time to catch up and get the next shot ready each year. But in this scenario, we wouldn't. Certainly, you can see how that would lead to a much worse situation. And I don't think anyone wants to go down this rabbit hole. I mean, what if they try to stick the shot in yet another cavity? Remember when they invented the nasal spray? Remember when they said everyone needs a colonoscopy? Yeah, they're not out of orifices. There's also a scary link between influenza and air quality. First off, some experts believe air pollutants like particulate matter, nitric oxides, sulfur dioxide, or ozone can become what they call condensation nuclei, where a flu virus particle can attach itself to the pollutant and stay airborne longer, allowing it to travel further distances. And on top of that, pollutants can make us sick or just feeling a little off, as we learned in our worker productivity episode. We might have a headache or a scratchy throat. If our immune system is already fighting off air pollutants, it will be much more vulnerable to the flu. It's like fighting a goose, but then you have to fight another goose at the same time. Chances are one of those geese is going to get you. So there's two theories for how influenza and air quality fit together. Pollutants can carry the virus and or they can make us more vulnerable to the virus. But is our air quality really bad enough for this to play out? Believe it or not, it absolutely can be. Take Kern County, California in 2013 to 2014. They had bad air quality and as a result, flu patients were getting severely ill and having to go to the hospital as early as December, as Department of Public Health Services officer Claudia Jonah explains. We have a lot of people that have been getting severely ill with influenza and are requiring hospitalization. So we're very concerned that already, you know, we're just getting to January, but already we've had these numbers of cases. And so we definitely would predict that in the upcoming weeks, we would see an increase, but we're already at an increased level. According to Claudia, this number of influenza patients was larger than normal and earlier than normal. And this coincided with bad air quality in Kern County. Studies have shown areas with poor air quality see increased rates of influenza, but Claudia provides an interesting perspective because not only are there higher rates, but more people with the flu are in the hospital. 
Remember, most people who get the flu don't need to go to the hospital. So that means with this bad air quality, the flu cases are not just more prevalent, but more severe, which is even more concerning. It means people having to endure much worse, it means greater losses to local businesses and the local economy, and it means a larger strain on hospitals trying to help all these patients. So yeah, it makes complete sense that Claudia says they're all very concerned, and air quality was the variable that caused that. While we're on the topic of air quality, it's worth noting that air quality is way worse in some communities than others. According to the American Lung Association's 2020 State of the Air report, people of color are 1.5 times more likely to live in an area with poor air quality than white people. We've covered some reasons for this before. Income plays a factor, of course, but if you go back to episodes like fracking, like natural gas compressor stations, like asthma where we talked about highways and waste transfer stations ending up in communities of color, like urban green space where we talked about air cleaning trees and parks ending up in white communities and not communities of color, you see a pattern. All these sources of pollutants end up disproportionately in communities of color. So it's hard to be surprised then when the CDC studies the relationship between race and influenza and finds disparities in hospitalization rates, intensive care rates, and in-hospital death rates, with even larger disparities among children. Compared to white Americans with the flu, black Americans with the flu were hospitalized 1.8 times as often, American Indians or Alaska Natives were hospitalized 1.3 times as often, and Hispanic and Latino Americans were hospitalized 1.2 times as often. Now, I'm sure air quality isn't the only factor, there's probably many, but given the links between air quality and influenza we just discussed, it's safe to say this issue isn't affecting everyone equally. Of course, air quality is an issue on its own, but what happens when we toss in climate change along with it? Well, it's basically the environmental equivalent of ice cubes in a deep fryer. In many parts of the world, including a sizable chunk of the United States, climate change creates the hot and dry conditions that leave areas prone to wildfires. And as you can imagine, that becomes an issue of air quality. Air monitor data from the Environmental Protection Agency, shows that during the 2020 wildfires, the concentrations for the smallest monitored particulate matter in parts of the West Coast reached 200 micrograms per cubic meter. For context, air quality standards in the U.S. for such particulates are 12 micrograms per cubic meter, and often these standards are criticized by experts as too lenient. I mean, yeah, are you kidding? 11 micrograms would be one thing, but, but 12? But again, in seasonal climates, the flu is in the winter. That's not when wildfires are happening. So how does this particulate matter pollution affect flu risk? Well, University of Montana's Dr. Aaron Languth studied how PM2.5, a type of fine particulate matter emitted during wildfires, links to the flu. Here she is discussing her findings. If you accumulate this wildfire season period, PM2.5 in your system, 
again, during that wildfire season, um, one would expect a delay of one to possibly three months in terms of an adverse health impact, or specifically in our study, risk for flu. In other words, the particulate matter lags in your system and can create adverse health effects a few months later when the flu hits. This is a big finding. Generally, we'd think wildfires and the flu would have nothing to do with each other since they happen at different times of year. But because that lag exists, wildfires affect flu risk. With climate change, that means more frequent and severe wildfires, which means more particulate matter in the air, which means flu risk would be even worse. So Dr. Languth's study has major implications for the future of the flu in a changing climate. And it's really too bad, right? Why can't particulate matter be linked to something cool like winning lotto numbers or people smiling in elevators? I thought fire was one of the four classical elements, not a flu machine. Is there a solution to this? Well, yes and no. We can't necessarily prevent these changes from happening but we can try to slow them by cutting greenhouse gas emissions, cleaning our air, doing work in communities disproportionately affected, and we can continue using a very effective flu control method, the flu shot. I know no one likes getting stabbed with a needle besides rebellious teens in a tattoo shop, but basically every expert says the flu shot is the best defense. And it's worth learning about the flu shot, because there's actually quite a few common myths. Listen to this CBS News segment where CBS medical correspondent Dr. John LePook quizzes the news anchors. You can get the flu from a flu shot. True or false? <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> it's false. You but can I get thought a... it was the flu in well, the shot. Well, yeah. that's why I did instead of way to go. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Thanks for clearing that out, yeah. that, yeah. You can get a little local irritation, and you can get a little aches and pains that go away in about a day, but the flu shot is made up from killed virus. You cannot get the flu from it. Huh. If only all newscasts were in game show format. You can get a fever. You can get a headache. Look under your seats. You all get chills and an excuse to skip work, unless you own a small boutique, in which case, oops. I don't know who of you knew this or who of you didn't, but this clip would suggest it's not common knowledge that the flu shot cannot give you the flu. You can get symptoms from the shot, but not the flu. The fact that misconceptions like these are so common makes it all the more worth it to learn about the flu shot and get your questions answered. And I'd suggest asking your doctor before you ask me. I'm no more an expert on flu shots than you are, but if you listen to this episode where I showed a lot of the things we don't understand about the flu and feel like, well, if doctors don't understand the flu, what good will the shot do? Let me reassure you. They have questions, but they know a lot. It's honestly kind of freaky how much doctors know. My doctor could tell I had a tapeworm just by looking at me. Granted, he was stealing all my nutritional intake and growing a robust muscular arm that stuck out of my side, but still. Seriously, though, the fact that they can decently predict what flu strains will be prevalent a few months in the future and then create a small needle's worth of goop that can teach your body how to fight it on the cellular level is amazing. I don't think I could even get the needle in the right spot on the arm, let alone concoct the stuff that's in it. 
Now, I never say we have to do any solution idea I propose. I always want to present options. But if experts are going on the news dispelling myths and saying the flu shot is the best defense, I'd be doing a disservice not to make that clear. Beyond the flu shot, obviously there's precautions you can take, which you may already be taking or be hyper aware of due to the coronavirus pandemic. You can stay home if you're sick. You can cover your nose and mouth when coughing or sneezing and use a tissue. You can even wash your hands and sing happy birthday while doing it. Or better yet, sing I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. I bet the people in the stalls would love it. It might not sound like much, but believe it or not, last winter, we had an unusually low level of flu activity, according to the CDC. Influenza hospitalizations were the lowest in history since the CDC began recording that data in 2005. It could have been in part some natural variation, but all the stuff we've been doing to try to get the coronavirus under control undoubtedly helped hamper the flu. That's not to say we need to live our lives in Zoom world, but it is worth noting how these small steps can make a difference. In terms of policy, there's not much flu-specific stuff, but there's certainly larger issues that, if improved, could make it easier to adapt to a changing flu. Climate change and air quality policy would help, certainly supporting scientific research into the flu, wildfire management, improved and more equal access to healthcare in hospitals, however you want to approach that. Policy could help with the issue of sick leave, both on the employee and employer side, to make sure everyone is okay. There's a lot of big issues that fit together here, so I'm not going to propose the policy ideas for each one, but all of these are worthwhile issues to discuss to help the flu and help a lot of other stuff simultaneously. So yeah, I know this sucks. It's like seeing Taisha and Zach and their engagement, and realizing that if they couldn't last, maybe cramming 27 toxic men in a house just isn't the way to find love. But while there may not be much room for optimism, I still think it's worth it to understand that the flu changing is a strong possibility, use it as extra motivation to fix the bigger issues that play into it, and be mentally prepared for worse flu seasons in the future. There may be no perfect solution, but if we've prepared and planned ahead for this, we can at the very least ensure we don't have to stick flu shots up every single orifice. Do you hate when Broadway actors perform without frantically running around a spinning platform? If so, Les Miserables is for you. With Les Miserables, you get to spend hundreds of dollars for tickets to watch Eponine die in her crush's arms, but not without giving him an overly simplistic song about photosynthesis first. We know a little fall of rain will make the flowers grow Eponine, but what about a drought or monsoon? Les Miserables, because bread tastes that good. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Jeffrey Shaman, professor in the Department of Environmental Health Sciences and director of the Climate and Health Program at Columbia University. Dr. Shaman, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Ethan. So your research spans a pretty wide range of interesting health and climate topics. To start, could you 
give us an overview of some of your research interests and what drew you to environmental health. Sure. My background, my training is in both biology and climate or geophysics, if you will. I did my undergraduate in biology, mostly in ecology, and I wound up getting a PhD in climate science, atmospheric science, hydrology. And while I was there for my dissertation, I wanted to do something that still drew on the biology I had studied previously. I wanted to look into something that could actually combine the two of them. So my, my dissertation wound up focusing on mosquito-borne diseases, mosquitoes, and the transmission of a disease called St. Louis encephalitis. And that's a mosquito-borne virus. It's transmitted by mosquitoes uh, here in North America. Uh, it doesn't cause too many illnesses and deaths, but it does cause some. But while I was studying that, while I was in graduate school, West Nile virus arrived. And West Nile virus was actually initially thought to be St. Louis encephalitis virus for a time. And then it was realized it was a novel, distinct virus that was more problematic, but it exploited the same vectors and hosts. So I started to pivot and started to study that disease as well. And uh, that became a, a real focus of my work, basically doing interdisciplinary research that for a time focused on mosquito-borne diseases and trying to understand how environmental conditions could be used to understand the transmission dynamics of those diseases, what made them tick, what made them run, and then to devise strategies possibly to disrupt it, as well as to use those conditions to forecast what was gonna go on with those mosquito-borne diseases. After that, I went on and uh, I've done research on basic climate science. I've done research just on infectious diseases. And I've also done work in the middle. About 13, 14 years ago, I started to work on respiratory viruses. And uh, that became really central to what I do. Uh, I had done some initial work on flu, looking at how humidity may be the really important driver of why we see flu in the wintertime and uh, why it's that way in temperate parts of the world. And that led me to start doing things where I was modeling flu, and then I was trying to build systems to forecast flu outbreaks. And this is different from what I just described for West Nile virus and mosquito-borne diseases, because this was actually taking methods that are used in numerical weather prediction and translating them to an infectious disease system. So it's actually a very different approach, and it's trying to what's called forecast a nonlinear dynamical system. And so we built out systems that were really analogous to what they do for weather prediction, but they were wholly being applied to an infectious disease system, which has its own transmission dynamics. And that's something that I've pursued for 12 years now. And uh, over the last couple of years, we've been using this to look at COVID-19. So there are a number of systems that we've looked at in the context of how is meteorological and hydrologic variability and even perhaps climate change driving those systems dynamics and, and what are the implications for what's going to happen in the future? So I found it interesting. I've seen you express the idea that we're not entirely sure what causes influenza transmission, which really surprised me. So how much do we know about influenza transmission? Why is this such a difficult question? It's a difficult question because it's never observed. We've never seen somebody transmit the virus to somebody else. We can't because they're microscopic. So that in and of itself is problematic. And unlike, let's say, a sexually transmitted disease where you can actually establish who the partners were, what the contacts were, you're not gonna know when the event actually took place, but you're gonna have some idea of where the opportunities lie. For a respiratory virus, where we think the most likely modes of transmission lie in fomites, which is an indirect route, 
droplets and aerosols. So, so a person who's infected with influenza or COVID-19 or any respiratory bug, we, while we're speaking and breathing and singing and coughing and sneezing, we're emitting lots of droplets out of our respiratory tract. Uh, some of them are very fine. Some of them are larger and goopier. You can see them when you sneeze or cough, obviously. But embedded in that for an infectious person are going to be some virus. And that virus is going to be expelled out into the ambient environment. And at that point, there are lots of things that happen that we can't monitor with great fidelity. And that leads to enormous uncertainty. So what are the conditions under which the virus will survive in that droplet longer? What are the things that happen in the droplet that might inactivate the virus? Is it more problematic that when you spew out some droplets, it's the big ones that land on surfaces that somebody else then touches and eats a cheeseburger and gets it into their own system? Is that the dominant mode of transmission? Or is it when somebody just sprays somebody else in the face, right? Which is why they talked about in COVID, maybe we need to be six feet apart, or maybe it's longer. What's the real cone at which you're, you're safe around an infectious person? Or... Is it the really small ones that aerosolize and remain aloft on the air in the room that people then inhale so that somebody could walk into a grocery store, fill the environment with virions, check out, somebody else comes in five minutes later, and they can get infected by somebody who they've actually never overlapped with in space and time, right? So we don't know any of that stuff. And people have debated it, they've tried to study it for decades. And we really haven't come to an understanding of that for any of the respiratory viruses out there, including influenza, which is the most studied. And so one of the peculiarities that happened with COVID-19 was that when it came out, there was a lot of dogma being put out there by official channels, by pundits on the media and whatnot, that just followed narratives that have been sort of there that people haven't taken enough time to stop and say, but wait, wait, how do we know this? So we would hear that, uh, I remember listening to people in February 2020, March 2020, going, it's transmitted by droplets. This is what it is. And I'm sitting there, I was pulling my hair out going, how do, how do we know this? We don't know it for flu, the most studied respiratory virus there is. How can we possibly know it for a novel entity nobody's even experimented on? Like you mentioned, some of your research has examined the ways in which weather has affected influenza prevalence, which carried with it some implications, given that climate change creates winters with a lot more weather variability. We could see more humidity, which you mentioned. Uh, mm-hmm. Looking to pass data on temperature or humidity and comparing it to influenza prevalence, can we say weather affects influenza? Is it just a correlation or are we actually able to measure causation? What we can see is in laboratory experiments, in most instances, when people have looked at the survival of the virus. So what they do is they'll take the virus and they'll culture it. They'll put it into some sort of medium that's supposed to either just be a growth medium or something that's supposed to mimic the goop that comes out of a person when they're coughing or sneezing or breathing. So then what they do is they then take that virus that they've cultured and they put it in a medium and they either aerosolize it or they put it on surfaces and they'll set it at different temperature and humidity conditions or UV conditions. And they'll see, well, how long does the virus remain viable? By which they'll sample it, and then they'll try to see how many what are called platforming units form, or they have some other tests as well. And what they found is that at drier and colder conditions, and particularly at the drier conditions, the virus, like flu, does really, really well. 
and it survives longer. Now, why that takes place, we still don't know, but we can see that effect there. Furthermore, there have been studies in the lab between animal models that have also shown that the transmission between animals happens in drier conditions better than it does in more humid conditions. So we do have a suite of laboratory evidence that points to this. It's not always consistent, and some show that it's sort of a monotonic relationship, whereas you get drier, there's better survival and improved. Others show that it's great at really dry conditions, but it's also lowest at sort of intermediate humidities and then better at really high humidities. Not as good as the dry ones, but there's sort of a a weird J or U-shaped curve in the association that's there. So I, I would say that, you know, in terms of nailing down the mechanism, the causality that you want, it's not there yet because we do not fully understand the physical chemical mechanism that might be driving it. But it has been seen repeatedly in experimental studies that humidity is a big driver of influenza viability. And I have to imagine the modeling process changes when you have both climate change and it also just must be difficult in general, given that uh, there's still all this uncertainty around how transmission works. So to better predict the flu in the future, do you or will you need to take climate models into account or will climate change make your work more difficult? Well, there are a couple, there are a couple of things there. Firstly, the transmission dynamics of any infectious agent have their own dynamics. Now, we can model that without getting into all the little details of the physical chemical processes and the movement and dispersion of droplets and aerosols. As a matter of fact, that's what we do. We do it at a population scale where we're just estimating what is that contact between people? What does the evidence show lately given how much cases have been growing or declining? But in terms of sort of like, well, what's the long-term trajectory? You know, if you have global warming, what's gonna happen with the flu? If you wanna look at something maybe, I would say if you were to look at Boston, right? And you say, well, in a warmer world, it may look a lot more like Atlanta in 50 years. Well, if you look at Atlanta, Atlanta has a very strong seasonal cycle of flu, just like Boston. I don't think it's gonna change it very much. On the other hand, if you say Atlanta is gonna look a little bit more like Cancun in 50 years, well, Cancun is a little different. Cancun is starting to look a little bit more like what we see in the tropics where things break down and flu can be around all the time, or you may have two seasons like we have in like Hong Kong, where they have both winter and summer outbreaks. And again, it gets to that U or J-shaped curve I talked about, perhaps that may be the driver of that. So I think almost geographic analogies are very helpful for just getting a first handle on it. Does it mean that's the answer? No, there's lots of complexity and it needs to be studied there. But if I were to look at this as sort of a, a first cut, given that we're still piecing this apart, I would use that. I would say, you know, Boston gets to be like Atlanta. It's probably still going to have a very strongly seasonal cycle of influenza over the course of the year. If Boston winds up looking like Bogota, well, that's going to be a real problem regardless. I don't know if flu is going to be our biggest issue at that point. You actually started to answer my next question, which was, are there certain areas of the world that would be uniquely impacted by a changing climate that affects flu season? I think it's those that are sort of at those cusps. So for instance, Hong Kong has a fairly well-documented instance where they'll have both summer and winter outbreaks, and then occasionally some that are even off from there. I imagine that if things get warmer and Hong Kong 
becomes more like Singapore just to move south from Hong Kong. Its flu season is going to look like Singapore. Singapore does not have a flu season. There is flu all year round there. Singapore is humid all the time. There's very little variability in the humidity from day to day and from January to July and March to September. So as a result of that, there doesn't seem to be a big driver that you can point to that's related to meteorological conditions for flu. As you've mentioned, your lab works on a lot of other diseases, including ones that are notably exacerbated by climate change due to mosquitoes such as dengue and malaria. So what does it mean that the rates of several different illnesses could increase during climate change? Does that bring additional concerns beyond just the increased prevalence of each individual illness? Oh, absolutely. So, you know, I think it's important to emphasize that there are going to be some areas where climate change may benefit them and it will cut down disease levels. And there'll be others where it's going to exacerbate one or more agents in ways that it's going to be problematic. And so it's not going to be a uniform making things worse or making things better. It's, it's really going to be a mixed bag. What it will be is disruptive. So we're going to see change. And the truth is society doesn't deal with change very well. And the reality is that every year for seasonal flu, Lots of hospitals in the U.S. are pushed to their very brink, to their very capacity. When there's a bad flu season, some of them even burst over and they have to put patients on gurneys and hallways with curtains around them or open up tents outside to handle the overflow of people suffering from the flu. So even in the United States, flu could push hospitals to capacity because a hospital can't run at 40% capacity normally and have this enormous room for surge. That's not economically feasible. They run at 75, 80, 90% capacity. So bad flu surgeons would just push them over, right? Well, now we may have it so that there's both a flu season and a COVID season simultaneously as we go forward over the coming years. You can imagine that as an enormous additional strain on those medical infrastructure that we will have to learn how to adjust to. Now, climate change will do the same thing in areas. It's going to bring diseases into certain areas. It is going to make malaria worse in some places. It's going to drive it up the mountains, as you hear about very often, where you're going to see places that were previously a little too cold in tropical regions because they were at altitude are now warm enough to support malaria transmission or year-round malaria transmission. And that changes the whole dynamics of care and public health and intervention. And it brings in stresses because of that change as the system tries to pool the resources so that it can appropriately respond to that increased threat. Dr. Shaman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure being here, Ethan. Be well. This wraps up episode 66 of The Sweaty Penguin. Remember, you can get a shout out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict. That helps boost us in their algorithms. You can also get a shout out by joining our Patreon. And you'll get not just a shout out, but merch, bonus content, even a chance to win a signed book from one of our experts. Head to patreon.com slash the sweaty penguin to unlock all that cool stuff and help grow the show. Once again, The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week.
Today's episode was written by Olivia Amate, Ethan Brown, Shannon Damiano, and Maddie Schmidt, fact-checked by Megan Crimmins, and edited by Frank Hernandez. Our producers are Olivia Amate, Ethan Brown, Megan Crimmins, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, Dane Kim, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Sabrina Rawlings, and our music was composed by Brett Saka. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownie Central. Clips today came from CBS DFW, Vanderbilt Health, 23ABC News KERO, ABC 10, and CBS.